In this episode of Vanishing Gradients, it is with great pleasure that I'm speaking with Hamil Hussein, head of data science at Out of Bounds, where I also work and where we are building human-centric tools for data scientists to operationalize machine learning models without having to worry about infrastructural concerns. I've known and loved Hamill for years and have found his extensive experience in data science consulting at Data Robot, Airbnb, GitHub, and now at Out of Bounds, not only inspiring, but also a rich and multifaceted source of wisdom about data science more generally. In this conversation, Hamill and I talk about his early days in data science, consulting for a wide array of companies such as Crocs, restaurants, and casinos in Vegas. What data science even looked like in 2005 and how you could think about delivering business value back then using data and analytics. We then talk about his trajectory in moving to data science and machine learning in Silicon Valley, what his expectations were and what he actually found there. We then take a dive into AutoML, discussing what should be automated in machine learning and what shouldn't. We talk about software engineering best practices and what aspects it would be useful for data scientists to know about. I'm also super excited that we got to talk about the importance of literate programming, notebooks and documentation in data science and machine learning. All this and more. I'm your host, Hugo Baun-Anderson, and welcome to Vanishing Gradients. Hey there, Hamill, and welcome to the show. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. I'm so excited. And we've been chatting a lot for years, but a lot more recently because for the first time, we've collaborated together before, but for the first time, we're working together for the same company. Yeah, yeah. It's really exciting. So something I'm interested in, I don't know if anyone listening will be interested in, but I'd love to know, first up, what it's like working with me. Oh, it's great. (laughs) I've uh, known you for some time. I've also listened to your podcast from the OG podcast that you did a while back. I would say, yeah, you're pretty consistent personality. So yeah, it's really nice to work with you and like I make jokes all the time. The jokes are some of the funnest stuff. And also we'll share some links in the show notes, but you're a meme lord as well, who gives Elon Musk a run for his money, as far as I'm concerned. And the data memes are just you and Mark Serafim, who we may converge on in conversation later, because he has a lot of interesting things to say as well two of my favorite memesters in hashtag data Twitter space. But dude, one of the things I'm really interested in is you're passionate and seriously opinionated and have a breadth of experience across a lot of different like data ML stuff. So we work together at Out of Bounds now, building productivity tools for data scientists to allow them to focus on the top of the stack, like the feature engineering, model ops, that type of stuff. So they don't have to like worry about configuration files and compute, like they just get access to that. But you've worked at GitHub before this, Airbnb before that, Data Robot before that, and then did a bunch of different stuff before that. So that was, I just gave like a, a rewind version. I'd love to know how you got into the data world and your trajectory first. So maybe we can play that forward and you can tell us about how you got excited about it and kind of your trajectory. Yeah. So I first got excited about data stuff in college, really. I mean, I was, uh, I was doing computer science 
just because that's what everyone told me I should do and really know any better. And then my teachers are really bad. And I end up not liking programming, surprisingly. The teachers were bad, but also, in my experience, computer science curriculum can be, like, it varies place to place, but it isn't always practically focused, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't practically focused. It was very, like, uh, low-level stuff. And the teachers were not really that good. And so I ended up focusing, I kind of pivoted to an adjacent thing called industrial engineering. That is a field that's about kind of convex optimization, optimizing schedules, optimizing production lines, like thinking about that is super practical because it's kind of a applied engineering field that is kind of born out of the industrial revolution and trying to apply kind of engineering to that. That was super interesting. Studied a lot of statistics and math and stuff like that, but also like some computer science, but it was all like any programming, it was practically focused. That's kind of what turned me on to this, like doing practical stuff with data. And then I ended up, my first job was at this bank called Washington Mutual, which is now defunct. It was bought by this other bank, Chase in the U.S., but I was working, uh, my first job out of college was work, working on a credit risk models. The credit risk models, there was just like forecasting if someone will default on their loan. So I did that for a bit. When was this and what were you programming in? That was in 2003. And I was programming in SPSS in a little bit of SAS, but it's a statistical software called SPSS. Maybe it's around still, I have no idea. And it was writing a lot of SQL queries. I, that's the first time I learned SQL. And so I was doing all that stuff and it was very like basic classification models like decision trees and logistic regression basically. And from there I got kind of bored of that and I decided, oh, like consulting sounds interesting. Like I can go visit a bunch of different companies and see like what they're doing. Maybe I won't get bored. Like I'll just be at every different company for like a month or so. And get to have like many different types of projects. So I joined this company called Accenture and their management consulting group. And I was focused on a lot of like data stuff there. So I did mostly telecom there, like helping AT&T and AT&T ended up buying all these companies, but basically like a lot of like telecommunications, internet providers, things like that. I worked there to help optimize their customer satisfaction and diagnose various problems in their business using data. I did that for four years. Then I decided... Did you do other stuff outside telco? I remember you you did some Crocs machine learning at some point. Yeah, yeah. So that's the second phase, which I'll get to. So then like, I got bored of doing that. and I'm noticing a trend. Yeah, I got, I got bored <laughs> of doing that. This is consulting, and I just felt, okay, you know... Yeah, yeah. So at that point in my life, I never did anything. I always did what felt like mentioned computer science, industrial engineering, whatever. I always had this like engineering stuff that I was doing, but I never like in my life explored anything else. And so I thought, hmm, maybe I wasn't sure like this is what I, what I like because I didn't really experience something I didn't like. So I didn't know if this is what I like. So I decided to just do something kind of crazy. And then I went to law school. I decided, okay, maybe I'll be a lawyer. So I went to law school, quit the job, I moved everything, I moved myself to Michigan, which is in Ann Arbor, college town. And I lived there for three years, went to law school. I ended up hating it. 
I thought it was like one of the most depressing experiences of my life. But you finished it? I finished it, yeah. I don't know why I finished it. I should have not finished it, to be honest. Well, from all I know about, I mean, I can be an incredibly stubborn human. And I'm not projecting all of that onto you, but I get a sense of that as well. Yeah, it could be some of that. It was more like I was trying to give it a chance kind of thing. And so... Yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, I did that for three years, ended up hating it. And I didn't like it because it was so opposite of tech stuff. Like everything moves slowly. It's very stuffy. It's very status-based. It's not necessarily about the work you do. Sort of, it's very hierarchical. Things move slowly. Things. It's about precedent and blah, blah, so forth, so on. And I just didn't enjoy it for those reasons. And then I thought, okay, I have to get out of this somehow. So the lifeline available to me to get out of that was doing consulting again. I didn't really want to do consulting again, but I said, okay, let me do consulting again because at least I can extract myself from this law thing and then I'll figure it out. And then so I went to this other consulting firm, Alex Partners, and there I did like a really wide range of projects, all focused on data science stuff. So that's where I worked with like a lot of retail clients. So this is what I call like uncool data science. Which is so I worked with companies like Crocs, I worked with a restaurant, Ruby Tuesday, I worked at all kinds of retailers like Hot Topic, Pacific Sunwear. I don't even know, maybe some of these companies are bankrupt now. I'm not really sure. I worked at uh, MGM, the casino in Las Vegas. Vegas data science. I like that. I just spoke with Katie Bauer at Twitter and she told me she's doing some professional development stuff where she's meeting a lot of data scientists and she spoke to a dude who's a data scientist for Grand Theft Auto and for the game. And he does stuff like figuring out how to price cocaine in the game and stuff like that. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Fascinating. Sorry, Vegas just reminded me of Grand Theft Auto for some reason. It's unclear why. Yeah, I could see how that would bring that up. So a bunch of companies like that. I don't even remember all the companies, like at least 30 or so different ones. But basically, I even did some consulting for a gun company. So it was like everywhere. It was crazy. Maybe some companies that didn't even agree with what they were doing, for example. Like I've heard kind of a, a pretty naive question or set of questions just around what these processes even look like. I presume you clearly weren't deploying models like on SageMaker endpoints and stuff like that, right? Were you like giving them CSVs of predictions or was it like keynote slides or like dashboards or like how was it roped into the coupled with the decision function? Oh, yeah. So it's a really interesting question. So I'll give you an example. So I'll give you an example of this restaurant experience. So like this is how it would go. There would somebody would call some consulting partner and say, Hey, our business is not doing so well. Can you help us fix it? Can you help us figure out different strategies of fixing it? And then they would say, Okay, Hamill, just come with us. So we would arrive there. I have no idea what we're gonna do. I just go. You go there, you sit, you walk into the room, and say, Okay, like here's like promotional data. Where we're sending coupons to everybody and promotional information. Here's like a giant Excel file full of all this stuff. Can you find something interesting in there? Hell, we'll just find something interesting. It's like, okay. So you just open it and you start digging around. And you say, oh yeah, did you know that like only 10% of your campaigns have like 90% of your lift or something like that? And things like that. You just start talking about that really fast. Like very quickly, I'll go in there and start doing stuff like that. And that would lead to another conversation like, oh, that's interesting. Okay, like, can you help optimize that? Or what, what else can you find? You kind of like build trust by like poking around and like asking questions. Other times it's like, hey, or like customer satisfaction is like going down. And you spend a lot of time building context first. 
you don't start with data. You start with, okay, like your customer satisfaction scores are going down. Like, what do you mean? Okay, like, how are these scores calculated? Where are they? And then sometimes I just go interview a lot of people. Like, let me go talk to people. So, like, in the telecom example, I would have meetings with all these call center agents and say, like, focus groups and say, hey, what is going on? Tell me about opportunities that you see. Basically, I would be gathering hypotheses that I could test from real people on the ground. And sometimes I would just sit with them. I would actually like sit with them for an entire day and like just listen to them interact with the customer. Like so I could really deeply understand like what is happening in this business. I would do the same thing like some of these retail places. I would go work in the restaurant or the retail store for a day. I would get really deep into it. I would go like work in the factory for like a week or a day or something like that just to really understand the context. So like that's it's really interesting like the data stuff only came later in every one of these projects. First it was like okay, understand the business and the context and build some hypotheses about like whatever problem they've presented to me and try to chase that down. It kind of feels like investigative journalism to be honest with the fact that I have for sure data skills. And then sometimes it would end up in, okay, like here's a model that can help you. But only in rare occasions it would end up there, or like fairly rare. Okay, I would say that maybe 20% of the time. So maybe not that rare, but. And the rest is more like analytics? Oh, yeah. Like I wouldn't even call it analytics, can sometimes be generous. It's like a lot of times I would discover really deep business problems just by doing this investigative journalism. So, for example, so you mentioned Crocs. When I came into Crocs, they, were like, they said, okay, like we have a problem with their inventory is costing us a lot. We have all these shoe sizes and we don't really, we don't know how to optimize that. So can you help us like do some magic to help us optimize our inventory? So I was like, okay, like I've always been trained not to just jump into the problem with data science. Okay, like you want to optimize your inventory? Great. Okay, so how is your inventory, like how do you, Sure, you have this inventory data, but like, how is it collected? Like, what's the process for collecting this? Does it even make any sense? So, the first thing I do when I get data is I try to brainstorm ways I can verify it. So, there's like some really interesting tricks that you can do that people that are pretty underrated. One is take any data set you get and try to think of other systems that have the same data or like an aggregate version of that data especially like financial systems or payroll systems that are supposed to be accurate. So like if you get a bunch of data about inventory, low-level inventory and stuff, can you recalculate, can you figure out like sales from that? You should be able to. And if it doesn't match like financial reports, then something is wrong. We're talking about consistency, verifying consistency in a lot of ways, yeah. Yeah, consistency, yeah. And you can think of very interesting ways of verifying, like thinking of all these different rules of verifying consistency. And it's a very good trick, actually, to verify the quality of a data set. I think it's pretty underrated, like people don't do that. But it's just an instinct that I have had over the years because I've always run into these problems. Almost, I would say I always find these problems. And it's very related to, I mean, it's a snapshot of issues you get with data drift and that type of stuff as well, right? So Yeah, it's like... We need to be constantly doing verification and, and validation. Like, that's a snapshot of it occurring at one point in time, making sure that all of these things are correct working together. Yeah. 
But then when you're modeling, you want to make sure that essentially your training data is representative of what you're trying to predict. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like in this example, it was that, okay, the beginning inventory minus the sales plus the receipts did not equal the ending inventory. So, I mean, where is it going? Like, And the funny thing is, people did this before data science, right? Yes. The bar owner who's employing a bunch of people will make sure that the cash in the till at the end of the night kind of matches the amount of drinks sold minus what a few that like, you know, you give away a few freebies. But if it's $1,000 off, you're like, hey, who took the money out of the till? Yeah. So I mean, it was like a systematic data problem. And it really like, usually when I'm given a data science problem, I find something like, and this, this is not by any means unique to uncool data science. I would say I found just as the same or bigger things in Silicon Valley. So like in Airbnb, when I first, one of the projects I was working on is optimizing LTV. And that's lifetime value. Lifetime value. Of a customer or a property. Yeah. So predicting how much money you'll make from this relationship over your joint lifetime. Yeah, exactly. With regards to like the reason for predicting this LTV was to allocate marketing dollars to different campaigns. And sort of when I looked at, okay, the marketing campaigns and there was a notion of like somebody being converted, for example. And I wanted to like figure out, okay, the consistency between our internal notion of what is a conversion and then what the marketing partner, so in this case, in this case, like Google or somebody who we're using for like AdWords or something like that, marketing campaigns, what is the conversion numbers there? And so I noticed when I was given this project, I noticed, hey, like, conversion number that we're reporting to our marketing partners completely different, maybe like an order of magnitude different than what we have internally. And like the people who were saying converting internally and externally are completely off. Like they're very, there's almost no intersection between them. And then if you understand how ML works, so the way these like marketing stuff works is like you take your marketing partners, they give you some code or something, like some JavaScript code, you embed it in your site at a place where a conversion occurs and it sends them a signal. And they use that signal to help you try to optimize future conversions. So you can imagine an ML model where it's trying to predict rare events and you're feeding it very wrong labels all the time. It's going to totally destroy that model. I mean, just if you think about it deeply. So for example, Airbnb, I said, okay, like you need to, we're not going to forecast LTV. Like you have a much deeper problem. Like you are giving your partners incorrect signals. There's no way they can be able to optimize anything. You're measuring the wrong thing. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting like how often, if you dig deep enough into, try to think holistically, when someone says, hey, like, hey, can you do some ML or do some, maybe build a model? I would say like 70% of the time I come back and say, I don't think you should be building a model. I think you should be doing something else because this or that or whatever reason. And I think that's one of the biggest issues in data science is kind of facing that reality. Because I know I face this like many times, like where I work, where a lot of times the incentive is just to ship a model and celebrate the shipping of a model. I mean, we are we are incentivized as an industry to do that, like as a profession. There's a whole ritual of hey, like build a model ship it, write a blog post about it, give some talks internally. But the problem is, is like the smell is when there is no shipping a model is celebrated, but in like moving metrics or achieving concrete business, 
outcomes is not so much like on the radar. Seems like an analog of in product and building features and that type of stuff, what they call, heard this term recently, uh, resume-driven development. Exactly, yeah. And you can get quite far in data science as a career just building models and celebrating those models and writing blog posts about those models. I mean, it's kind of... So this is something I want us hopefully get to talk about cargo culting. And something I'm hearing here is there's even a concept, like there's a lot of tool and model cargo culting, but there's also general machine learning cargo culting, which I think will be interesting to get into a bit later. But I'd like to get back to your trajectory after... Oh, yes, yeah, I went on a tangent. All the, no, great tangent, because it foreshadows some things that happened when you went to Airbnb. But in between your uncool ML vibes and Airbnb, there's a very rich story to be told there. So maybe you can tell us what happened then. Yeah, so like I learned a lot from the uncool things, like how people are doing stuff, how different industries are operating, like what are the real problems on the ground. It helped like really ground me in sort of what all kinds of people are doing with regards to in their needs and their impressions of data science and all kinds of stuff, like in kind of what the mismatch is and where data science is good match for people and when it's not. And then like, again, I got bored of doing that. And I thought, okay, I saw all this like, cool stuff being done in Silicon Valley. I was also reading these blog posts and stuff like that. And also I felt, okay, like I really want to kind of not do these projects where I'm, I kind of make something and leave. I want to, to actually stop being a consultant and sort of go into industry. Be more invested, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so at the time, I was living in Boston, and I actually had worked with this guy, Zach Mayer, who maybe you have him on the podcast. He's a very interesting character. Love to. And he's, Zach's one of the, correct me if I'm wrong, did he work on Carrot with Max? With Max Kuhn? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's one of the co-founders of Carrot. He's one of the my few, like, Python meets R Venn diagram heroes as well. Yes. He forgets the flame wars and just gets shit done and builds in both. Yeah. And he seems really lovely about all of it, to be honest. Yeah, no, so he was really brilliant. So he was working at the same consulting company I was for some time, and he really was quite an impressive of a person. And then he went to Data Robot, which is this company that had a bunch of Kaggle grandmasters and people like Zach that were just super sharp. So I thought, okay, you know what? I'm going to leave. I'm just going to drop what I'm doing. I'm just going to go work there. And just quickly, would you describe Data Robot as like democratizing it, like auto ML stuff that makes building a lot of models in parallel relative? I'm trying to yeah. describe Data Robot. That's my sense is building a lot of models in parallel with big like red button, you press it, builds all your models, and then it does all of that stuff so you can focus on the interpretation and seeing what works best and this type of stuff. Yeah. So like around that time, 2014 or so, like building models, if you think back to the time of Carrot, the package you mentioned, the R package you mentioned, like building models is... I just want to say, for those who haven't necessarily heard of Carrot, Carrot is something Max Kuhn and Zach built together. Max was at Pfizer at the time, working in pharmaceuticals. I think doing a lot of drug discovery, but I may have got that. I'm pretty sure that's where it came from. I may have got that slightly wrong. Carrot now... I mean, Max is now at our studio building tidy models on Hadley Wickham's team, working with a lot of really cool people. And this is software to really follow, to look out for, easily productionizable. If you're one of those people who thinks R doesn't work in production, I'll include a few links in the show notes to dissuade you of that completely. Don't come at any of us on Twitter. Come on the show if you want to start a flame more about it. So that's my PSA anyway. No, Karen was... So like back in that time, if you wanted to build models it was pretty painful. Like you had to, so there's so many models to choose from. 
And they all had their own unique quirks and some of the esoteric quirks like, oh, okay, like yeah, how to tune them, how to use them, like so on and so forth. There's like a plethora of different... Even what you're inputting to them, like even the format, like the data structure you input into a model could differ between models so you couldn't quickly switch them in and out, right? Yeah, exactly. And so the first package that I remember in open source that wrapped around a whole suite of different algorithms and said like, hey, you prepare your data in a certain way and then it will help you try 30 different algorithms all in one common interface. So you can just try all of these things at once. And that was really super important. It allowed you to focus on other things that matter, like feature engineering, the problem, understanding the domain, so on, and not spend all your time on just like modeling. And the other thing I'll say about Carrot is their documentation and the vignettes in particular meant if you wanted to find out how to use it and that type of stuff, the vignettes were so beautiful. They talked you through in kind of narrative-based forms how to use Carrot. And I think that's one of the reasons Scikit-Learn garnered such adoption around the same time, actually, is because they were incredibly well documented for humans. Yeah, yeah, it was really good. And so like kind of around that time, kind of the same mentality of, hey, like, so people like Zach had all these recipes in their mind and other people like him. Some of these people were Kaggle folks, some of these people weren't, but basically it was, hey, can we take like a lot of the best practices that we have learned working with like not only Kaggle problems, but like real world problems? Because granted, like also these Kaggle people were not just doing Kaggle, like there were many of them were actually working in the real world doing real things. And they're all super impressive. So they all kind of got together in this one company data robot and made this platform that basically, you know, you prepare your data and you feed it to the platform and it tries many different types of models, many different types of algorithms, tunes them all. Actually, like one of the most magical things, it does a lot of feature engineering stuff for you. So this is pre-deep learning. So like every algorithm, it'll try like many different types of feature engineering approaches. And so in my mind, like they really invented the true auto ML. Like there's different spectrums of auto ML, like different tools on the spectrum, but this is kind of the first tool that I saw that and used that I thought, okay, like this is really auto ML. And you know, I could say why, but say why? Oh, because so if something is truly auto ML, you don't want to kind of have to draw a box from your data to the output and specify like what models you want to try and you specify like what feature engineering steps you want to try. Yeah, there's no code. Like, like a lot of things are no code ML platforms or a lot of people automate one part of the modeling process, like tuning. A lot of people are automating hyperparameter tuning or maybe some people are automating maybe trying different models. But kind of gluing together all the modeling steps, like the feature engineering part, plus the modeling, plus the tuning, and then giving you all these diagnostics. So the diagnostics are really helpful too. All kinds of diagnostics about your data, about the models, different kinds of models, what's working and what's not working. Any kind of diagnostic that you can potentially think of, all this stuff is like automatically produced for you. By the way, we're not sponsored by data. No, I want to yeah, make that clear. I yeah. don't realize this is turning into a. But okay, so. But so it's more about auto ML, like. Yeah, yeah. But I have a question around. I'm a contrarian in some of the best and some of the worst ways. Yeah. But something, my spidey sense tingles when I hear automated feature engineering. Is there a concern? Shouldn't we be injecting? 
very serious domain expertise into the feature engineering process, among other parts of the pipeline. Yes. So it's not like that you connect DataRobot to your database and it just joins all your tables together and like just has some benevolent AI that goes and like does all your... No. You have to bring your data to DataRobot. You have to like collect the columns and, you know, let's say tabular data. You have to collect the rows and columns. You have to provide the features. So you do all of that before you give it to auto. And let's actually not talk about DataRobot in, in particular. Like your ideal auto ML system does a lot of feature engineering, but you prepare it with all your domain expertise beforehand to give to the system. Yes. And then it does all this stuff and then tells you the output of lots of models with lots of parameters, with lots of features, and helps you navigate and diagnose what's happening to those. Yes. AutoML should make it such that you only have to do domain-specific feature engineering and not any model-specific feature engineering. Right. So what I mean by that is like, okay, you know, like some algorithms, you have to normalize your data. Some algorithms, you have to do something with text. You know, you may want to treat text in a different way depending on what algorithm you're using. I'm not, I'm not talking about just deep learning here. I'm talking about all the different algorithms that they're, they're out there. Absolutely. You know, you might want to try different kinds of tricks. You might want to have some kind of model ensemble for certain things. You might want two-stage models, or you might want to do, depending on the constraints you have and the compute you have and the how simple you want it, whatever. And so, like, that's the thing. That's what I mean by feature engineering is... There's a lot of these tricks for kind of, I would say, model-specific feature engineering. Like, hey, with this model, like these tricks work really well. And it's not just, there's actually like quite a few of those. And so it's really helpful not to worry about all that stuff and just say, okay, I'm going to get the features. I'm going to try to collect the features that I think are important. And that is feature engineering. And then at least there is some, the AutoML system will aggressively try many different feature engineering steps. It's not a magic wand. It's not a free lunch, though. I mean, it's not that, oh, it will, it's guaranteed to find the best feature engineering stuff by any chance. As we know, Hamill, that there's no free lunch. Yeah, there's no free lunch. Right. But I will say this. Yeah. People get the wrong idea about AutoML. They think, oh, okay, like this is going to automate my job, automate modeling. Like, how is something going to automate modeling? How are you going to compete with a human being? And the, the answer is, like, it's not about competing at all. It's about augmenting you. So it's just like, would you ever... It's cybernetics. Yeah, if, would you ever write a blog post without spell checking it? No, probably not, especially as a professional. Like, you would use a spell checker. You know, it's a tool that's there to help you. So... Funnily, I have to now. This is the bane of my existence. Being Australian, having lived in the US for so long, I'm an inconsistent speller now. <laughs> so I need a spell check, and I need to set it to whatever region I'm writing for, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. And the same thing here. It's, hey, if you're going to work on an ML problem, it's really helpful if you have access to one, an auto ML system, just to get a really strong baseline and just see like what kind of signals that you get. You have all the diagnostics, all the reports. Maybe you don't end up using anything that you find in the auto ML. Maybe you find that the model that you have beats the auto ML. Like, and you're like, don't care, whatever. I also love, I wonder if you feel the same way, I love the idea of always your first model not being a machine learning model. Like you base it around slicing the data in a particular way, making predictions based on features, that type of stuff. Do not do any machine learning to see what accuracy and other things you get. 
when building that model, right? But for, never use machine learning as your first model. That's one of the things I really liked about Data Robot is it really baked in the best, I would say, the best practices around model evaluation and just general thinking. In something like Data Robot, they have a leaderboard, basically, of all the different models as it's tried. But it always placed the dumb model on the leaderboard. Well, you did hire a lot of Kaggle people, so I wouldn't be... Yeah. I'm messing with you, man. It would always have the dumb model. So it would always have just the average model or the max model or the mean model or whatever. It would always put that on the leaderboard. Yeah, exactly. Statistical. And you would see really fast, like, oh, something weird is happening because why is the average model on top? Like something went wrong. These type of things would really... And there's a lot of things like that. But what I'm getting at is with AutoML, it's kind of augmenting you and allowing you to like kind of and also check a lot of your biases so like when i was using auto ml at airbnb when i for a couple of projects it was super interesting because people would say hey like random forest does not work on this problem people would be very convinced you know people develop these affectionate sort of attachments to their algorithms sometimes when you hear a statement like that, it's pretty, your spider sense should go off. Totally. Because, I mean, what do you mean? It doesn't like, I don't know. It's not because of the data was like something about the data, but it's like, okay. I always prefer the statement, it hasn't worked yet. Yeah, exactly. As opposed to it doesn't work. Like it's actually a very slight nuance, but. It is. Yeah, you're right. We want to be more like pundits. We want to be more certain. Yes. We still don't deal with uncertainty well, right? Like we'd be like, actually, it's 80% probable then. They're like, get out of here. What's your posterior? Yeah. So it's just like, okay, if you try the AutoML system on a whole bunch of projects, even at a place like Airbnb, we found that, okay, like it really defied people's expectations and kind of countered a lot of biases, but also did a lot of things like found data leakage in a lot of places and things like that. You know, things like, Perhaps like you want tools to help you as a human being. I think that's kind of underrated. Absolutely. And I do think the idea of tools to augment what we do, and I'm going to give, it's not clear to me yet in machine learning what should be automated and what shouldn't. I think some of the things you're saying definitely resonate, but I'm, I'm going to give an example that I don't think is as, one I'm actually more certain about. And something we may come to, it involves GitHub Actions, actually. Mm -hmm. Something I'll, I'll come back to later. So as you know, I haven't spoken about this publicly. I'm not even sure whether... It should be chill. So I'm writing a book, as you know, with my good friend and colleague, Eric Ma for Pearson on um, a Bayesian inference and probabilistic programming, right? So we're doing this in a GitHub repository. Eric has done this before. You've done similar things that we'll talk about later with uh, NBDev. But I was like, Eric, how do you want to do this? He was like, oh, I got these GitHub actions set up that essentially I write a notebook and he set up some browser-based version of VS Code with GitHub or something. Like, you'll know more about this than I do. I'm just doing the work. Then I like do pull request from within VS Code to GitHub. And what that does is it turns, sets up another branch called build and like converts my notebook into LaTeX and then converts it into a PDF. So we have a branch called build that just has PDFs of every chapter we're writing, right? And so what has happened there is that I'm doing what I want to do. I'm writing code and what my time is best served doing, right? I'm writing code in notebooks and then all the other crap that, I would hate to do. I hate that man, right? Yeah. Like the computer is the AI. No, I'm joking. We're not allowed to say that. <laughs> um, we're not allowed to say that. Us, you and me, other people may, and we have to correct them when the, the AI did this. But then GitHub Actions or whatever does it and 
like that, that workflow, augmenting me in that way is absolutely amazing. So figuring out, I think that's uncontestable. That's kind of a good workflow here. That's how we do that with ML. And I love the idea of automated model building, hyperparameter tuning, once you feed in domain expertise and features and data and that type of stuff. So that, that seems quite, quite attractive. I hope that analogy is helpful for listeners. It's definitely helpful for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, automating stuff is really helpful in general. And I think CI is actually kind of cool. CI systems like GitHub Actions are kind of cool for automating all kinds of stuff. So we'll get back to that. CI is continuous integration. To me, it's not clear if it's the best paradigm for machine learning workflows, but I want to get back to that because we're still... This is great, though. I mean, some of this conversation we're planning on having later, but we're getting kind of in the weeds with some very interesting stuff to me based upon your journey. So perhaps what happened after you were at Data Robot? Yeah, so it was really interesting, like a little bit, just to flesh out Data Robot a little bit more. I also kind of did some consulting when I was at Data Robot, like helping customers use Data Robot. And I saw like time and time again, like people take very practical approaches to, I saw time and time again where like simple approaches beat complex approaches in because we discovered that with the auto ML system. Like, hey, like, you know, logistic Russian like works really well if you tune it the right way and you do the right way. Or you know, you can simplify your whole system by doing using this approach or whatever. That really was interesting to see that across hundreds of different companies. Totally. So then okay, after that, so I was living in Boston and Boston is not Silicon Valley, and you would still... Do I have one more question about Data Robot? Does that mean, I recall, there were a lot of interesting positions at the time that you are there called customer-facing data scientists that interacted with... So was that partially your, your role? Yeah, I did that for about six months, and then after that, I kind of did this untitled role, which I just worked on special projects and stuff like that. But yeah, that's how I kind of got in, is this customer-facing data scientist. Special projects, that sounds like some, like, intelligence agencies, stuff, like special op. Yeah, yeah. It was just kind of all kinds of different things, really. It was interesting. All right. So then you also moved to the West Coast in this journey, right? Yeah. So then I decided, okay, it would be really interesting to work at. Like, what is this like Silicon Valley stuff about? This seems very interesting. I mean, these companies seem like they're doing something very different than the rest of the world. Or they seem like they're very ahead. At that time, I thought, okay, like, let me, what's a really interesting data science company to work at? And at that time, this is like 2015 or 16 or something like that. You know, I thought Airbnb seemed pretty interesting for that perspective. So I got a job there. Can I just stop you for a second? You're like, hey, yeah, Airbnb seems interesting. So I just went and told them and they gave me a job. No, like, no, no it's you, not like that at all. What are you, what are no, you talking yeah, about, yeah. man? No, how, okay. how, the, how on earth do you get a job at Airbnb when, I mean, both have lots of friends who are working there and they optimize for true positives Yes, and get a lot of false negatives in doing that in their hiring flow, right? Yeah. As do a lot of companies up the top. So how do you get a job there? Before Airbnb, I got rejected from probably like 20 other companies. Awesome. And the reason that's awesome is because people need to hear that. Like with careers like yours, people need to understand that the amount of times... Well, I've been rejected as well, right? So. Oh yeah, I've been rejected way more than I've been accepted at. But especially in tech interviews, I'd be like, yeah, I. In, in fact, I didn't even. I had applied to Airbnb so many times, they like, never even got back to me. It's only when I had a friend who referred me, and then like I went to this interview, and then I kind of got. I felt like I kind of got lucky 
in the interview even you know the problem was something that i kind of i was able to do well on it but it didn't have to go that way they could have given me some other problem they could have stumbled on it, that's how i feel like interviews are, are and to be honest with you also like i think airbnb was kind of it was definitely from a, the resume perspective that was the time where i feel like it made a huge difference because uh for whatever reason maybe for better or worse like sometimes having some brand like that opens up a lot of doors and so like that was kind of allowed me to get into like this quote silicon valley kind of ecosystem you've also spoken to an interesting concern in the middle there from us from the supply side of the labor market is getting through hr right yeah so i actually i met a kid the other night i met him with a friend had dinner with him he's from baltimore moves to sydney his background's in aerospace engineering or something came to australia couldn't get clearances so couldn't get the jobs, couldn't get through HR things in tech companies. So this kid, this is a real American hustle. I'm so impressed. And this is one of the reasons I, I love America, man, to be totally honest, is this kid, he recognized in downtown Sydney where all the tech places are. He was like, I'm going to get a job in a bar in one of those places and just start talking with executives and let them know my my thing. To avoid going through being rejected by HR, he got a job in a bar. When he starts he started hearing people talk about tech stuff, he was like, hey, I've worked with Python, worked with NASA, did this aer aerospace stuff. Here's my resume. Started getting offers based on that, man. What a great hustle. That's great. Because of the barrier of people teams, right? And HR. And I've got a lot of love for a lot of people teams and HR. I think the incentive systems are, are skewed. They have a lot of challenges themselves. I want to be clear about that. So this isn't just... But it's to point out some of the paradoxes. Oh, yeah. I would have never gotten into Airbnb if I didn't have a friend that worked there that referred me. I'm pretty sure. And maybe I probably wouldn't have gotten the same jobs after Airbnb either. Because sometimes it can be difficult to break into a system like that. It's funny to say that nowadays because like now I don't feel like my resume even matters, but that's because, okay, like you can build a brand through social media or something like that. But it's kind of interesting to think about the data science industry job market can be kind of difficult in this dimension. Dude, you're blowing my mind right now. And I think for another conversation is the idea of brand building and resumes. And I, I think a lot of what we do is kind of, live action role playing and kayfabe, right? Where if you haven't heard of kayfabe, this is something I'm fascinated by at the moment. It's um, the theater of North American wrestling, essentially, and the simulation aspect of it, but how it bleeds in, into reality. And once again, this is something Mark Sarafim is very interested in. I'm going to chat with him on the podcast at some point. But what were you hired to do at Airbnb? And how did it start? And how did it end? Yeah, yeah. So Airbnb, I was hired to work on growth marketing. So my first project, I remember it very vividly. Were you on Robert Chang's team? Was he doing growth marketing or was he somewhere else? No, he was on, um, I was on guest growth and he was on host growth or something like that, like a, a sister team. Okay, cool. I don't know if it was host growth. It was, I think it may have been host growth. I don't even remember anymore, like, but it was on a related team. So when I first came in, like first day, they're like, hey, we have this LTV model where we're doing some, we have this model in production, blah, blah. Can you just take a look at it? And maybe can you improve it or do something? I'm like, okay. So I go there, I sit down. I'm like, okay, like show me the model. Like, how does it work? Like, can you just walk me through it? The guy sits down at his computer. He's like, okay, I have this R script. I run this R script. I'm like, what do you, like, what do you mean? Like this R script is somewhere else? Like, no, it's on my laptop. So he's like, okay, he runs this R script. The R script is some model that whatever, it prints out some coefficients to the terminal. Okay, like he's using RStudio. So he copies and pastes 
the coefficients in the terminal, and he opens an Excel spreadsheet. Yes. And he copies these uh, coefficients into a spreadsheet. And the spreadsheet has formulas that then make take these coefficients, embed them in a SQL query that he's put in Excel. Then he takes the, he copies and pastes this Excel SQL query that is generated from Excel. He copies and pastes that into Airflow, which is the system that they were using. And basically this Airflow, quote, running inference, you know, linear model that is kind of doing this. I looked at that model. So first my mind was blown. I thought, okay, like I have gone on this pilgrimage to the Silicon Valley. Yeah. And, and I was expecting to find something very advanced and probably it was bad luck or something, or maybe it was just my funny uh, circumstances. But I saw, wow, like this is some hacky stuff that rivals whatever Crocs is doing or whatever you might want to say. <laughs> it really taught me that, okay, like, you know what? This is really all the same stuff. Like there's nothing special about it's not really that special. So we're basically starting from scratch here, like what is going on? And then at that time, there was a couple of ML systems floating around Airbnb. So there was actually an ML system called Air, it was based on Spark. I can't even remember what it's called, but it was some kind of, I have to look it up. But it was made by this really smart guy, Hector Yi. You should probably have him on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really nice guy. But anyways, like the model had, so there was a, feature in that system where you could do feature crosses, which is basically making your equation polynomial, multiplying features with each other, against each other, whatever. It resulted in something like this model having something like 3 million features. So I said, that's crazy. I wonder if there's overfitting going on. Cause, and there was, there was some overfitting going on. So this is a different model, like related to LTV is something else, like predicting growth. But when I hear that, I always like, you should always regularize or most of the time, as far as I'm concerned. But when I hear that, I'm like, please be regularizing. Yeah, yeah. But even 3 million features, it was like 3 million features based on only like... Like L infinity regularization or something. Like 150 features basically or something. It was like, I don't know the exact, but it was like a ridiculous ratio. But basically, in the, uh, anyways... I found all these problems and I decided, okay, it was hard to kind of put anything in production. I thought, okay, like this is crazy. Like why is this copy and paste thing, Excel spreadsheet, whatever. There was some data leakage and some stuff like that that I found. That's fine. Every problem has that. Then I started like thinking, okay, you know what? Like we need better tools because how can we do this, this copy paste stuff and all this stuff. So I kind of spent my time at Airbnb just building tools, like are exploring different tools, like how we could, what is the best path in Airbnb to productionize ML? And I started working closely with the team, like this ML infrastructure team, that eventually they went forward and built this tool called Bighead, which is ML infrastructure tool that Airbnb made. I don't think it's open source, but it's something that they've talked about and kind of, I think they've used a little bit. But yeah, I just focused on tools. I realized, hey, tools are really important. There's no way anybody can do ML. Now, there's other places in Airbnb that were doing really good ML. So there's other like teams, like there was a search ranking team, but they had their own infrastructure, like custom built for that problem. There wasn't something like you could just hook in, you, you could just use. This is a kind of like a nascent, at that time when I joined Airbnb, like it was a nascent kind of capability. And also, I mean, search, right, is like a foundational aspect of the business model and the value prop. Like lifetime value is important for optimizing stuff clearly, but if you don't have 
search as Airbnb. Yeah, so that's a really good observation. So with the search ranking, that's something that you can see immediate uh, value right away. You know, like if that's doing well or not, you can see conversions change in a day and you kind of you have really clear attribution mechanisms. You could say, hey, like, no, this search ranking algorithm is making a difference uh, versus like marketing is very fuzzy because like marketing becomes like into goes into this attribution problem. Like, OK, you showed these ads, like, did it really give you a lift or were the people going to convert anyways? Or did they convert? Is there double counting from another channel or whatever? There's all kinds of complications. Well, there's the old joke, right, from the 20th century that's still applicable. 50% of marketing works. We just don't know which 50%. Yes, exactly. I discovered actually with this growth marketing stuff, you know, Airbnb was falling victim to some aspects of the situation where you can't really measure stuff definitively or definitively enough. And so what I mean by that is, you know, I was asked to, for example, hey, can we make LTV like a bigger number? It's not really big enough. Like, can you just expand the time horizon? Like, instead of like a four-year... Can't you just edit it in an Excel spreadsheet to make it bigger? Can't you just like plus... <laughs> almost, yeah, almost. So like, you know, like, it's like, I mean, okay, LTV over what time horizon? Two years? Four years? Ten years? Yeah. I mean, yeah, we can keep making it like, make a 20-year LTV. I don't know what's going to happen in 20 years. This is a very noisy prediction. You know, I was asked to do things like that. That was a signal that maybe kind of wasn't going anywhere. But like the story I told you earlier where you were, so I found that there was incorrect signals being given to marketing partners. Yeah. And that was a very unnoticed. And so that's also indicative of sometimes when we're asked as data scientists to do ML and data science, you have to like really pay attention if the thing that we're being asked to do, is it really driving a business outcome? One way to look at that is like, hey, if you turned it off, would anything different happen? And so like basically that's what was happening here. It turned out when like when COVID-19 sort of hit, there was actually some talk like how like the growth, they like stopped spending, almost cut their growth marketing budget, Airbnb did, like significantly, like something like 90%. And there were some comments, hey, like we didn't see any difference really. So you can imagine like, okay, at some point that was an example where maybe things went wrong that is something like I think like data scientists get caught in. Like, there's a performative aspect of a lot of times machine learning and data science where it's almost as if you can't see, if you can't measure the outcome or there's no like a direct business value, oftentimes it does become performative. So it's something to watch out for and something that I learned. But anyways, so I was doing that for a while. I was there for about a year and then I had to move to Portland because my wife got a job in Portland. So I decided to look for remote companies. And then... Your wife works in medicine, is that right? Yeah, she works in medicine, yeah. Cool. And yeah, GitHub was like a really cool company, looking company at the time. This was pre-acquisition by Microsoft? Yeah, it was pre-acquisition. So I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot. GitHub might be cool. And just to be clear, I mean, I think most listeners will feel the same way. Whether we love GitHub now or however we feel about it now, GitHub changed our life yeah. and our practice in a, in a very profound way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, both in open source and in terms of building products Yeah, and building businesses, right? Yeah, I thought it was cool. I thought, okay, like this is a cool place and I like their product, so I'll give it a shot. Yeah. Okay, so one thing I want to say about Airbnb, it was like the people were awesome. I think it's like one of my favorite places I've ever worked in terms of the friends I made. I mean, the people were like super smart and kind of just like the friendliest people 
I've ever met. There's something really special there. Nice, man. And you were working, you went into the office? Yeah, I went into the office. Okay, cool. So like, yeah, and it was like a super talented group of people like working in data science. Even though like I found various problems that I talked about, this not any reflection upon, that's more reflection upon like the much larger system. That's not like a, I don't think that really has anything to do with data science per se. I think data scientists, they're pretty sharp. Probably the sharpest I've ever worked with, to be honest. Amazing. And then it's like similarly, like GitHub. So like went to GitHub and that GitHub is pretty interesting. Like, so I started also kind of start out with building ML infrastructure at GitHub. And then at some point I started building tools in open source. So, so what I'm hearing is you're doing less data science at this yeah. point and getting more excited about building productivity tools for data scientists. Yeah, yeah. I was getting more excited about that just because I, you know, all the problems I encountered so far and the things I shared about yeah. sort of whatever is happening, I thought, okay, maybe I can affect this with tools or help people with tools. And so at GitHub, I started doing that. GitHub went through some tumultuous time where their data science, they didn't have any like data science leadership was like completely gone for, you know, they reorged the company and it was just kind of an orphan group, sort of. So we kind of worked on whatever we wanted to. How did that feel, man? Yeah, that was a little bit challenging, but I kind of made the most of it in terms of like, I thought, okay, like I'll just work on stuff that I think is interesting. So I just worked, started working on open source stuff. So that's where I met a whole bunch of, that was pretty unsuspect. I wouldn't have predicted that, but I started working on open source and met people like Jeremy Howard and just started like working with on projects in open source. Amazing. And that relationship with Jeremy turned out to be beautiful and so productive, right? Maybe tell us about that. Yeah, that was really productive. Yeah. So the way it came about was, okay, so I've been a student of, I've taken fast AI classes and stuff like that. And I think Jeremy got to know me a little bit as a student of his class. You know, he'd always do these things like support students by sharing their work and stuff. So he did that with, with stuff I did. And I actually uh, created this project called Code SearchNet based upon stuff I learned from Jeremy. So it's basically like Code SearchNet is like, I think it's GitHub's like first representation learning with ML of code. So it's sort of, so it's a data set that we shared that had, it's a parallel corpus of code in natural language. And then we created a bunch of reference models that build embeddings of code so that you can like search code with natural language, for example, for information retrieval. I mean, I'm trying to read behind some of the lines here. You were able to then collaborate with Jeremy on some of this stuff. Essentially, the, well, not essentially, like the creator, co-creator of UL MFIT, which turned into GP3. No, so I, I didn't get to collaborate with him on this project, but it was interesting because I le- took some of the stuff I learned and then I got to collaborate with a bunch of other people, like at Microsoft Research and all kinds of cool people from different places. That was really big at GitHub. That was a cool project. It's more of a research project, but it did get people really interested in like this idea of representation learning of code and maybe you could do something with the corpus of GitHub data and deep learning and some of those people working on a co-pilot. That was where my mind just went, actually. Yeah, so it really generated some of that interest. I showed that project to Jeremy and Jeremy got really excited about that because it was using a lot of stuff I learned in FastAI and some stuff from FastAI. And then also he came to GitHub even he visited, gave a talk at GitHub, and you know, I started to get to know him a little bit better. And then GitHub Actions came out. 
And, you know, I didn't even know, see, I didn't understand how CI, like these systems worked. I've always seen... Can you tell us a bit more about that? Because I talked about how I've been using GitHub Actions for some stuff recently, but can you just give us like a very brief elevator pitch on continuous CI, CD in general and GitHub Actions maybe? Yeah, I think continuous integration is like pretty confusing jargon. To me, CI is basically a thing that allows you to run arbitrary code triggered by various events. You want to run some code when you push to a GitHub repository? Great. You want to run some code 9 a.m. every morning? Great. You want to run some code when you make an issue comment? Are you open an issue? That's great. You want to run some code when you open a PR? Okay. So what do I mean by running? So what kind of things do people run? Well, the most common thing is to run tests. So to say, okay, like I'm going to open a PR, I'm going to take the code in the PR, I'm going to test it. And so it's uh, you know integrated with GitHub and it's usually used for testing. You can run anything. I mean, you can you basically use it to automate stuff. Yeah, and so the example I gave, of course, was I push something and it converts it through a series of actions into a PDF that I can share with my editor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, if you have a workflow that where you write code and you want to take that thing and basically automate it, do something with it. It can be good. So, and what's the CD part? Maybe you can tell us what CD is then. Yeah, CD is stands for continuous deployment. So the idea that you can take your code, like let's say you're building a website or an app of some kind, is like you can build it when you merge your code into the main branch of the repository. You can kind of build your thing and then push it to wherever to serve it. You can hand it off or you can do the steps required to actually put it in production or do something. That's the CD kind of part. So I was always also like really fascinated by these systems because I didn't really understand how they work, but I thought they were super useful. Like I was like, oh wow, this is like really cool. Open a PR and you get these colors, tell me like green, yellow, red, and like it seems really useful, but I didn't really understand like what was happening. And then GitHub came out with this product, uh, GitHub Actions, which up until that time you had to put third party stuff in your GitHub repo. So I said, okay, this is cool. I'm gonna like learn this now because like I work here, and then maybe I can like justify my existence a little bit better if I like get into this. And I thought, okay, maybe there's some interesting data science related things I could do. I don't know. Let me just check it out. Yeah. So I got to know it really well, and then I decided, okay, like what's really interesting is one idea that came to my mind is what if I could build something that takes notebooks and makes it into a blog post. And that would be cool. Because I always wanted to make a blog post with notebooks. So blog post is like, you start writing in Medium. At that time, it's like, okay, write some stuff in Medium, copy and paste code. Now, if you change your code, you have to copy and paste it again. That sucks. Copy and pasting stuff. I used to use something... I don't know if you ever used Pelican. Yeah. Like there were a few things floating. It wasn't automated per se. Like I had to do a bunch of yeah. tech judo and essentially like cable management, like jamming stuff together. Yeah. Like Jay Vanderplas had created, I think, like a static site generator. I think he used something where he did this gluing. But I think Chris Albin did something similar for his early blogs as well. But I don't know. Yeah. I was really fascinated by that. And I thought, what if I just made a cool project to would be like, you drop a notebook into a folder in your repo and boom, it's a blog post. But can I do that? Yeah. Then I saw like Jeremy was, I knew that he used this project called MBDev, which I was like super fascinated with. I didn't really know too well, but I was like, okay, I kind of messaged Jeremy one day. I said, hey, what if, would you think this is a good idea? Like, oh, before that, Jeremy had this project called Fast 
blog or something. Fast pages? No, it was before fast pages. There was something else. Like it was not even using GitHub Actions or it did not notebooks or anything. It was just you can use a Word document and it becomes a blog post on or something like that. And then I was like, hey, like what if we could do this with notebooks? And he loved that idea. I was like, yeah, that's great. You should do that. And then I created this fast pages. So I created those fast pages. Then I said, okay, Jeremy, let me set up CI CD or this GitHub Actions on all your repos. Whatever repos you have, like, let me, I think you should automate some stuff. He's like, okay, that's great. And I started working with him and like getting into all this stuff, setting up tests everywhere. And to set up tests everywhere, really had to understand like what the hell is going on. And then I started getting deeper into his projects and more into just by the nature of what I was doing, I was getting into the development or his development workflow really deeply. And I thought, oh, okay, it's just development workflow, but no, Jeremy's development workflow is super unique. It's like he built an extension to the Python programming language, which is Fastcore, and he has his very own development workflow system called NBDev. And that was really fascinating. So I had to learn those pretty deeply. So the way I did that is I basically went on one month documentation sprint of Fastcore and documented everything I could about it. And then NBDev, I started basically contributing to the project and trying to improve it and taking some of the stuff I learned from fast pages and reorganizing MBDev and really kind of getting into it, improving it and all that stuff. Can you give us the elevator pitch on NBDev? We've talked around it a bit. What, what exactly does it do? So MBDev is a really exciting project. It's literate programming. So what is literate programming? It's this idea that you should be able to write your code, documentation and tests in one context. So you shouldn't have to write code in one place, then put your tests in a different folder, and then put your documentation in a different folder. Because the reason is like, okay, nobody writes documentation and very few people write tests nowadays. Despite what we tell people to do, like we kind of have to beat people over the head. Why? Because it's not natural. So literate program, this environment that is created is sort of, you can do all that in one Go kind of, and it encourages you to writing lots of documentation and tests. And so we've created a lot of videos on it, and something I really encourage anybody listening to this to go check out. Yeah, and we will include links to the all the videos and docs in the show notes. And if you haven't heard my interview with Jeremy Howard, we actually talk about MBDev a lot as well. So definitely check that out. Yeah, I think it's great. It actually blew my mind in the sense that I thought, wow, like this MBDev stuff is maybe more impactful than even deep learning. Like deep learning is pretty impactful and the fast AI library, but I thought, wow, like this applies to all of software. I can make high quality software that's documented, tested, and that other people can get into or that can understand just by the nature of how it's built. And you only have to write it all in one place in your notebook, right? So and that goes to the documentation, that goes into your doc strings, that it goes everywhere, it goes to your help functions, right? Yeah, it's pretty robust. And so then Jeremy and I kind of did some really cool projects too. We just, things that are not data science related at all. So we ended up making a GitHub Python, a new Python client for the GitHub API. That was really cool. It's called GH API. Use that doing MBDev. We created, so the CEO of uh, GitHub at the time, Nat Friedman, he had this side project where he was taking the GitHub event stream and making it into like a news feed in the CLI, in the terminal. Like where you just stream it all. It's actually not that much as it seems. You can kind of stream it in your terminal. And, you know, he kind of built it out. And then Jeremy looked at that. I looked at it. I was like, at that time, I was really fascinated by this 
project called Rich. This is built by Will. Uh, I think, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but you know what I'm talking about. The Scottish guy. McGowan? McGowan, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so we'll include a link. I love Rich. I love Textual. He's doing cool stuff. He's actually hiring at the moment as well, but he's turning the terminal into all this like cool browser stuff as well. I mean, he can do the pitch way, way better. I should have him on the podcast at some point. Really nice stuff. No, it was great. So really cool thing about this story is, so we rebuilt that streaming project thing in Rich. We took it. And we said, okay, like we're going to stream all GitHub events and we're going to show it in this nice interface in the CLI using Rich. Then we end up sharing that. And then Will made this blog post that says, hey, you know, like I was uh, just this Rich thing was just a side project. But this thing that Jeremy and Hamill built, it blows my mind. I'm going to make this into a product. This is crazy. Like I'm going to make text. I'm going to make uh, terminal based applications because this is I'm like, wow, okay, like inspired somebody to do something with their product. And it's really fun. Rich is like an amazing product. It's so much fun to use. Yeah. And also Bash, the client, is awesome in general. Like bring back a lot of, lot of, I can remember one of the first times we met, you introduced me to the CSV kit for like data cleaning in the terminal. That blew my mind, man. Oh, yeah, yeah. Jerome Jansen's, he writes his book in this book, uh, Data Science at the Command Line. That's, that's an awesome book. It's awesome. There's a second edition as well. Okay, we're going slightly off topic now, so let's bring it back. I want to know about what then happened at GitHub and then your journey towards us working together at Out of Bounds. And then I think it'd be great to drill down into more about the tooling landscape and how much you love tragedy of the commons we're currently experiencing in the tooling land. Basically, I worked, did a lot of work with Jeremy, and it was a really cool experience. Like I got to learn so much by working with him closely. So then it kind of came up on the four-year mark or four and a half year mark of at GitHub, had a second child, went on paternity leave. Congrats as well, by the way. Yeah. How old's your, your youngest now? Six months. So cute. Yeah. But then you know, I've always been interested in tooling and of various kinds. And so at GitHub, I was using all kinds of different tools. So we were using stuff on AWS. We were at one time we built our own tool. We had used Argo. We did Kuflow. I also got really involved in Kuflow when I was at GitHub, uh, the Kuflow community, and working with that. So we like we used some of that stuff. And then eventually when we got by Microsoft. We used like Azure ML, and Azure ML is basically a white labeled version of ML Flow. Dude, I'm getting a headache already, man. Just hearing all like you got a great blog post as well about an end. I'm going to read this an end to end example of deploying a machine learning product using Jupyter, Papermill, Tecton, GitOps, and Kubeflow. What is our life, dude? Yeah, it's pretty. There's a, it's too many tools out there, and it's not tenable in the sense that if you're at, working at a company like GitHub and you're a data scientist, you can only engage with two to three tool vendors max. Doesn't matter how many problems you have, you have a fixed budget of time because, like, every time you engage with the vendor, it actually takes up a lot of time. You have to talk to lawyers, you have to like fill in some weird contract thing, and you have to get it through all kinds of processes and red tape. And it's like, it's not easy to buy stuff usually. And so, you can only do that a finite number of times. And if every tool is only covering 4% of the surface area, I don't know why I picked that number, but whatever. Like a very small... I wish it was 4%. I'd be happy with 4%. I think it's like 1%. I think it's like 2%, 1%. It's very small. Because there's so many, there's so much surface area and there's like so many point solutions out there. I mean, you have tools for surveying, for labeling, for experiment tracking, you have model workflow systems, you have model monitoring. 
it just goes feature stores, feature stores, metric stores, metric stores, experiment tracking, data cleaning, data validation, star ops. Star ops, yeah. Is that a term? You just make that up? I don't know. It's pretty good. Yeah, no, well, I'm, I'm just doing like ja riffing on regex, I suppose, right? Yeah. I want to bring back regex into just regular conversation. Yeah. You know, there's so much fragmentation. It's not really tenable to see compose your data stack with 30 different vendors. There's no way anybody can do that. It's impossible. Nobody has enough time to engage with 30. And 30 is a generous number. It might be slightly more, but... 30 is like pretty realistic in terms of like the number of ven different vendors you might want to go to. If you want to truly like today, if you want to use this best of breed thinking of like, I want the best tool for that thing, then yeah, you might need 30 different tools. Now, there's certainly tools that are more monolithic in nature that cover like more surface area. It's interesting. To, my mind just went to open source, right? And we always say that this is almost a trope in our industry now and across Python in general. But Python isn't a best of breed tool, right? We've always called it a Swiss army knife, right? It's never the best. It, well, it's very rarely the best tool for any given job, but you can do all the jobs with it and glue them together, right? Yes. So I wonder how that applies. But that's open source. I wonder how that applies in a productized space when the incentive systems are different. I also want to add, as you know, the past couple of weeks, I've been in a kind term would be dependency purgatory. I've been in all forms of API hell, to be honest, across, spread across many different products and many different services. I think I sent you a series of incredibly frustrated messages about, okay, to step back, my background's in research science and part of my mission and part of my job is to help, I want to help tens of millions of scientists do industrial science, essentially, right? And they cannot be expected to do what I did the past few weeks in terms of like after dinner for five hours dealing with permissions on and roles on Amazon SageMaker, right? That's very concerning. That's what people need to do currently. Also concerning that that's what companies pay PhDs in astronomy to do, right? Like there's total impedance mismatch there as well. And I was ranting about this to our colleague, friend, CEO, Ville Tulos, right? Because he's such a patient and generous individual. He was like, I understand your concerns, Hugo, and it's totally valid. But Ville said to me, dude, what you've just done is you've trained like this wild LSTM and set it up on an endpoint that's accessible globally, man. He was like, what are your expectations? He pulled out his phone and said, these things only came out in 2008, like satellites only went up X years ago. He said, I totally understand your concern, but this is magic also. Like, this is absolutely incredible what's happening here. And I was like, wow, yeah. It's kind of like, you know, that joke that if you can't get the internet in a plane now, you're like, oh my God, where's the internet? I can't send my emails. Where And you're flying in a like a metal container going around the globe. Like, yeah. when did your expectations get so... So I feel like Ville kind of set me straight. That doesn't mean it's not the most frustrating shit, right? Yeah. But it's a transformation of expectations, I think, and recognizing what you're achieving as well. That was kind of a slightly incoherent rant. Does some of that resonate? Yeah, that resonates a lot. We're able to do incredible things. Okay, like the fragmentation in the tool space, you have millions of different vendors, whatnot. And I think, you know, in some sense, it is a giant human grid search on what are some good tools. It will probably, you know, it will result probably in better tools. I, I'm pretty confident it will. And that's a good thing. Now, it's kind of feels crazy being in it at the moment, 
say, okay, there's billions of dollars, perhaps trillions of dollars being invested in this space at large. It's pretty noisy, but I think people also recognize it's super valuable and that there's lots of opportunity and that's why their different folks are trying to build good tools. I think like the current state is, I think if you take like the really long time horizon view, yes, it seems like we are going to end up in a better place with better tools. But, you know, at a shorter time horizon, okay, when you opened your podcast, I think it was like a five minute, 15 minute thing and term data science was coined in, I don't know, 2014 or something like that. Yeah, in 2011. It was actually coined in 2008, I think. Jeff Hammerbacher coined it then, but then popularized with that HBR piece by... I actually looked that up because I was like, was it coined or was it popularized? So that's why... Ah, I see. Okay. But yeah, you open with this like, hey, it's been popularized such and such a date. And then now we're here and nothing, things seem like they're still frayed in terms of retooling, like what is happening? Yeah. I think I actually said something like, oh yeah, we're here. And then I was like, wait, where are we? <laughs> and that's what we're doing, man. I don't even, I'm trying to find a compass, yo. Yeah. It's very interesting, like what has happened. You might have to take a really long time horizon, like as Vilay is, is alluding to. Like I remember when I first started with this stuff. You know, I've seen a lot of tools come and go and a lot of movements die out. Like for the one most notable one is this Hadoop big data kind of movement where everything was like MapReduce and you build algorithms. And I remember there's this uh, framework called Mahout on Hadoop where you like, did ML and Java. It was really painful. Like no one liked it. There was a lot of a certain moment in time you thought, okay, like relational databases are kind of not cool anymore and not going to be used for data science. There was like certainly that kind of at least marketing. And like we've reverted all the way back really towards something that looks like more traditional, like for a lot of things, more SQL interfaces. I think that's really good. We had to do all of that exploration, it seems. It seems like, okay, sometimes you take one step back to go two steps forward or whatnot. What are all the forces at play? And I think talking towards cargo coding at some point, uh, would be useful, but also perhaps we can bring it back to giving listeners unsolicited advice about how to find tools that will help them in a landscape which seems to be difficult to navigate. Yeah, well, I think one thing that trips people up is how to think about open source tools. One thing that I think is useful to understand is that open source tools often are not meant to be something that for you to use, or that's not the only goal. Open source tools have so many goals. Can it can have so many goals? So one is recruiting, one is marketing of some kind. Another one is hey, like sometimes at companies, career ladders and things like that. Open sourcing your work is a way to kind of push yourself further along on some kind of ladder. Also, like some people just, you know, I've even seen things like some people just want access to their work later on, their own work later on. Say okay, like let me open source that. So it's not so much about, hey, here's a product that you can use. You have to understand, like, different projects have different goals. I think people kind of get carried away and say, hey, like, oh, why don't you just uh, use such and such tool? Like, Google is using it, Facebook is using it, Netflix is using it, whatever. And you have to really think, like, hey, is that a product that you, the expectation is not, no, you just use it off the shelf. It's going to work because so-and-so so -and -so uses it. It's, you have to really think about, like, what is the goal of that tool? Like, is it really meant for you just to pick it up off the shelf and use it? I think people forget about that, get lost in that. I agree. I think there's a lot 
this covers a lot of ground. Could we ground it in an example? What example comes to mind? Yeah, one example that comes to mind is TFX. So TFX, I gave a talk about this in Chip Hewen's Stanford SysML class, which is a great class, by the way. She's actually does excellent work around ML systems and tooling and stuff like that, like teaching people. TFX is pretty difficult to use for most people. It's not well documented. There's a lot of places in the documentation where it literally the documentation says, this is a function. I'm not making that up. It actually exists. It's a pretty high complexity in some cases. It's not like a really gentle sort of onboarding or sort of disclosure of complexity. Like you jump right into like very high complexity. APIs can be really confusing. It's super fragmented, so on and so forth. And what's the intention of TFX? What does it claim to help you solve? Yeah, TFX is like help you productionize your deep learning models that are built with TensorFlow. And then what are the other goals that the people developing it, do you think are trying to achieve if it isn't only to help people do that? Yeah, some bit of it is marketing to say, hey, like these are our thoughts around productionizing ML. Look at us, we are the leaders of that. You should use TensorFlow because we give you tools for that. But it's also like, hey, you should think about using Google Cloud because we are the people that we create we create good ML stuff or we know something about ML, so you should use our products. You should, you should use Google Cloud. I mean, it's not really, you could really see it like in the sort of documentation and some of the tutorials, a lot of the stuff like nudges you towards Google Cloud. Like some of this stuff is easy on Google Cloud or whatnot that maybe not be not so easy outside Google Cloud. And a lot of it is kind of like a, it is a marketing sort of effort. And then like some of the biggest customers of TFX, like Twitter, Spotify, for example, they are using Google, Google Cloud for this very reason. Because, it, you know, that's probably where if you are going to use this, platform, for it to be tractable, you probably have to use Google Cloud. And plus, that's probably a way that you're going to get support for this stuff. So it can be tempting to just cargo cult this stuff and say, hey, like this is the best tool, like Google's using it, they're smart, you should do this. And I think cargo culting is something that you have to be, it's not just ML, I mean, you really have to be careful of it in general. Like it can cause a lot more harm than causes than you expect. With regards, you know, a lot of things that are meant for Google or someone else are probably not appropriate for your company at all. And in fact, will cause you a lot more technical debt and a lot more problems uh, than they're worth. So I mean, you mentioned Kubernetes. Yeah, I mean, Kubernetes does help a lot of people with a lot of problems, but it's also super complex. There's definitely a lot of situations in tech where people probably overreach for Kubernetes when they don't need to be overreaching for Kubernetes. And so I think it kind of like applies to ML tool. I think like... But it's tough not to use these things when they're on the billboards, yo, right? I mean, there are many different analogies we can use for the landscape, but it does feel like Times Square sometimes, right? And Google, for example, along with a handful of other companies, has a huge amount of purchasing power in this landscape. So we see these flashing lights, right? So how do our listeners, how do our friends, how do our colleagues... How does our community, how do the next generation of data scientists and analysts navigate the tooling space when we've got these giant billboards in front of us? How do we find signal on what we can use? And One thing I would say is, and this is what I learned from working with Jeremy, for example, is learn to trust yourself. If something is not intuitive to use, do not buy into this idea that you are stupid or that these engineers that are much better than you are doing in a better way and you just have to strive harder and learn something 
you have to like graduate out of your ignorance. Now, of course, like you should always be learning, but I think don't throw away all of your knowledge and your perspective about what tools fit your workflow. And if something is not well documented, it's very clunky to use, the APIs don't make any sense, are they super complex and it's not really clear why. If you have to really ask yourself, like, why am I using this tool? Is it because Google's using it? And often the answer to that question is yes, that's the only thing you can come up with. You know, you really have to introspect and trust yourself and say, hey, like, do I like this or not? Because we are constantly being bombarded, like you said, in Times Square and saying, you don't know what you're doing. Only if you could use our tool, we'll show you how we did it at Uber, at Netflix, at Facebook or whatever. And then it's tempting to say, I mean, because human nature is, okay, like, yeah, of course, maybe I'm missing something and maybe I can learn from something, which is the case. But there's a limit to that in to say, hey, like, actually, no, it's not okay for things not to be documented. It's not okay for APIs not to make sense. It's not okay, for example, for something to just jump directly into distributed computing when you don't need it. Do you really need this complexity? You have to always ask yourself. Absolutely. That's a beautiful point. And I do think something we think about a lot, I mean, a huge part of our job now is to manage and tame complexity, right? And yet we always seem to be reaching for complexity, not only with tools, but with models as well. It's like, as we were saying earlier, it's like, hey, do we use these very complex models when we have a baseline? That's kind of chill. So how do we navigate this paradox of managing complexity when our the force is constantly pushing us there? Yeah, and I think there's a lot of incentives to push people towards complexity. And this reared its head, this was actually somewhat exposed by fast AI. So there was something called the Dawn Bench Challenge, which was how fast can you train ImageNet to convergence? And there was a leaderboard of this for some time, and you know it was like the people on top of the leaderboard were basically using lots of compute. And what FastAI did is said, okay, you know what? Like, let's take a different approach. Like, can we think more deeply about what we're doing? Do we really need that much compute? Can we use hyperconvergence techniques? Can we change the way we're training? Let's think really deeply about it. And they blew away all the benchmarks using something like 10x less compute. And this is going against Google, Stanford people, all kinds of open AI, all kinds of people. Yeah, I mean, I was actually like, I know Jeremy's fantastic in so many ways, of course, but when like I read fast AI like started to outperform like TensorFlow and Pi and all of that. I was like, what? I mean, seriously, man. So really it's just like paying attention to a lot of times complexity. It's sold to us as something that is desirable in some sense to learn into kind of skills to acquire, let's say of like how to deal with like very scalable systems and things like that. And then we can get too biased in those things towards those things. To be frank, a lot of career ladders in tech are geared towards awarding people with building complex systems. Yeah, I totally agree. I am also interested in thinking about, like we're trying to think about navigating the tooling landscape. I think the idea of following your intuition and being honest about your skills and what tools help you with those is really important. What would your advice be for things to people to learn when starting out, like going from junior to maybe something a bit more senior? Or Okay, let me reframe it. Let's think about the machine learning stack more generally. And as we discussed, there's all this like data validation, feature monitoring, feature engineering, experiment tracking, metric stores, feature stores, all of this stuff. Let's say someone can use the PyData stack or the Tidyverse to like do pretty well in a Kaggle competition. Like they know all the tools, but they want to start 
really getting in the weeds of learning the ops stuff and this type of stuff and taking things to deployment. It's so overwhelming. Where can people start and what progression can they take, I suppose? Yeah, my answer to this will be to get better at asking why. So I think kind of to circle back to sort of where I began in this data science journey is to really ask, I think it's good to learn tools like what you described, but I think you should always, when you go through this journey, you know, it's not linear. And I think it is worth after learning some tools to kind of go back and really think about like, why are we doing, why are you doing this? Like, why are you doing this data science stuff? Why are you doing ML? Like, why does it matter? Why does it matter to the business? Be very skeptical. Like, is the data correct? What is the data telling me? Let me learn the domain, interview people that are working in that domain. Go work in the domain yourself. Be really skeptical of everything, like why you're doing it and if it actually provides value. And I think that's not really a satisfying answer of like tools to learn, but it's... No, no, I love it. I love it because it provides not content, but a heuristic, a rule of thumb, a methodology. It's not like I say, teach me to fish and you're like, hey, I'll teach you how to think about where to find food, dude. Like, I can teach you to fish, but if the river dries up, you're done. So let's think more foundationally about it. So for example, using that methodology, I can tell you several years ago, I would build machine learning models and I'd have a spreadsheet open, putting down scores and accuracy and all of this stuff and like writing. Dude, I, I pretty much built a spreadsheet on my forearm at one point, writing down like model diagnostic stuff. So painful when experiment tracking became a bit more evolved. It was like, oh, that's something which will, will help me right here. So start using experiment trackers because of the pain and the suffering. Now, as you well know, I don't think in my humble, very humble, whoever says in my humble experience, I mean, is there anything humble about me having an opinionated hot take on this? But my hot take is that experiment trackers for the, are fantastic, but they solve something symptomatic downstream, very useful. Don't get me wrong. But I think the real question is upstream. It has to do with our versioning and artifacts of model runs that are in production and experiments. And as you know, that's one of the reasons I think Metaflow solves that really well. That's one of the reasons I'm really excited to be working on Metaflow with you. But that's for another conversation. But I think your heuristic of thinking about what, where your pain is, where the paper cuts are. I actually don't think we want to solve all the paper. Like there are people say a thousand paper cuts. Like what's a few orders of magnitude between friends, right? As my postdoc advisor used to say, but it's millions of paper cuts, right? And we don't necessarily want to solve all of them, but the ones that keep coming back and keep recurring, finding the tools which help us to solve that and building community around these types of questions as well, I think, and conversations like this, hopefully. I think one of the challenges of building tools and finding which tools to use, it has to do with pattern recognition, right? So we know in analytics, for the most part, kind of the types of things we need to be doing, right? Like there are error bars on that statement, but far more than we do in machine learning. Like machine learning at Crocs versus machine learning at Airbnb versus machine learning on Antarctic research stations versus machine learning in real estate versus machine learning in biotech. It's not clear what the actual patterns are yet. So once we start to, as a community, develop a shared reality around the collective patterns and figure out which tools are useful for those things, I think we'll start to make a lot more progress. Yeah. And kind of like what I was getting at is just being better at sort of connecting with the problems more. I mean, it's hard to do that at that too much at the outset. Because like when you're learning, to your question, when you're learning, progressing through data science and kind of building up your skills, it's hard to, because if you try to just do this stuff I described, asking why, learning about the domain, interviewing people too much at the beginning, 
it can kind of feel like a lot of pontification, but if you kind of get some of these skills and you're able to like look at data, you can then kind of go back and have a different perspective. Totally. And you know, this leads to a lot of things like being able to smell problems of various kinds with data, knowing where to get data, what questions to ask. And really the ultimate question in life is like what I should be working on. Exactly. And this you know, I think that's also really important in data science. Should you even be working on or choosing the problem to work on or what you should be working on is really important. And I think that's probably the most important thing. And the way to build that skill is to kind of go back and say, really introspect like all the problems that, that you're working on. This actually comes full circle very nicely to um your work at Accenture where you professed to go in there and actually like look at the data, figure out what problems, sit down with people and think through what they're actually doing business-wise as opposed to going in and being like, hey, we're going to build this deep neural network and deploy it on Mars, for example, which clearly wouldn't happen. Yeah. So we've been talking about tools a lot and ways to navigate tools. There's a paradox here as well in that you and I hate conversations about tools as well, but we know we have to have them. And I think, I hope that this is instructive. And I'd love any feedback from people listening to let us know. But my question for you, my dear friend, is with all the current focus on tools, what important conversations are we missing having? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot of those things around setting the right expectation of ML. Like, what is ML? When should you be doing it? When you should not be doing it? When is it a good fit? Making sure people have the right sort of understanding like of that. You can see this happening in tech a lot. For example, some young companies who are growing, they might want to build some ML capabilities for something. They might think they need ML. A lot of times they'll just hire a bunch of data scientists. When in fact, that's probably the wrong way to go about things. Probably want to hire some data engineers and some infrastructure people and maybe like maybe one ML person, maybe. Yeah, I'm very excited about the rise of data engineering now. It's been far too long coming. And it's arisen out of pain as well. But the fact that there's such an incredible focus on it that's still growing, I think is really positive for, for the field. Yeah, yeah. So I think continuing to have that conversation is important. And just kind of having more domain expertise as well is like, you know, I think that's really helpful and not doing data science in a vacuum. It's really hard to do that, though. Uh, how do you do that? You have all, you have to learn all these algorithms, you have to learn programming, you have to learn infrastructure, all of these things. I mean, it's funny, this actually comes back to tools for me. Oh, man. And this is my frame. Maybe I needed to put on some different glasses or something. But the way I think about it is, of course, data scientists need more domain expertise, but domain experts need tools and workflows to help them do the data science and machine learning as well. And I think it's probably, as Jeremy Howard has said, like people go to med school for a decade, lawyers study for however long, right? So getting that domain expertise into a data scientist is highly non-trivial, if, if possible at all, as opposed to getting good tooling and good workflows in the hands of experts. So I think both need to happen. Yes, I agree with that. And that's why I think it's important, at least to try to understand the domain because it's really so critical and being effective. And like, to be honest with you, so you might ask me, hey, like I have all this criticism about tools or too many tools. And of course I'm working on tools. In some sense, it's very meta because the domain I understand is data science. 
And that's why I'm building tools because I actually I understand data scientists. I may not understand lawyers very deeply or doctors or anything else, but I understand data scientists so I can build tools for them. So I think in the sense like kind of you could say the same thing about data scientists, like they're essentially if they're building tools for others, I think it's important to engage with the domain. And but it can be very tricky because that affordance is not always given to you. You kind of have to reach for it. Expectation sometimes is, hey, you're going to sit down on a computer and start building a model right away. And that ultimately can be destructive in the sense that you may not be working on something valuable. Exactly. So where I'd like to go now is, I think we have been critical, but constructively so as well. I do want to end on a positive note, because you and I are both very excited about a lot of things in the space. So we discussed your excitement about AutoML. I'm, I'm wondering what else there is in the space that you just makes you happy or that you're excited about for the future of data science and ML? Yeah, I mean, I do think the tools are going to get better and are getting better. You mentioned Python. I do think very long time horizon, I don't think anytime soon, that there will be a better programming language that will be popularized that will probably fit the data science workflow better. And I think it's like a lot of fun, actually, to explore different programming languages. And I highly encourage that. And I think that's cool. I think there's some fascinating work going on there, but it's very, Python is still going to be here for a while. Deep learning is really cool. It really unlocks, it's not about doing things at a massive scale necessarily, it like unlocks different things you can do with ML that you just couldn't do before. Like some things are made a lot easier with deep learning. And so I think like it's exciting to like explore that. Two that come to mind for me are computer vision and now natural language stuff and transformers are super exciting as well. Are these the types of things you're thinking about? Or Yeah, and I think it's going to be really exciting to see what is beyond transformers. Like, is there something, I guess, more research happens in the space? Can we go back to something that has like more tractable in its compute? over time. Things like transfer learning and stuff help a lot with that, of course, but... Transfer learning is... I actually don't talk enough in public about how much I love transfer learning. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I'm really excited to kind of hear more. I think one subject that's not talked about enough is... I do want to just flag, sorry, I think transfer learning also has very deep implications for privacy and security that aren't talked out about enough. The fact that we think about privacy of data, don't do enough on it, but the type of data that can be encoded in models and then used in transfer learning. And I'd love to find out more about that stuff, but my spidey sense once again tingles with respect to that. Like, we're going to end up in a place with like algorithms sold on marketplaces and, and stuff like that, right? So thinking about the implications of this. But I'm sorry, I just wanted to flag that there are concerns about transfer learning as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think like one area that I think is pretty fascinating that doesn't really get that much attention is active learning. But it's like, how do you, the practice of efficiently using your data and like labeling it in a smart way. Weak supervision, semi-supervised learning, all of these things are fascinating. Yeah, it's like these situations where you really don't have that much data, plus you need to find a way to label it or what does that even mean? That's stuff that almost everybody who's doing ML is doing to some extent, but no one really talks about it. But I think that's really interesting and I think it's like, continues to be like pretty exciting. So yeah, another thing, I mean, I'm excited about, I still remain excited about, even though it's not, has anything to do with necessarily ML or data science, like the literate programming. I think that's super powerful to kind of see where that might go and like bring more people into software development and maybe enable different kinds of 
software development? I love literate programming. And we've talked about this before, and I don't, but the fact my background is in scientific research, and I work with biologists who have their lab notebooks, right? So what they'll do is they'll write down their hypotheses in the notebook, then print out some data and stick it in there, then put like a photo of a PCR run, then all of this. And the basic, like one of the initial kind of inspirations behind the Jupyter Notebook, or IPython Notebook, of course, was to like give people who are using their computers as laboratories, which is what we do in so many ways, right? We have an experimental interface right in front of us in our, in our laptops to have a computational analog of these lab notebooks. And that's kind of part of the power of literate programming for me as well. Yeah. And another thing kind of related to that that I'm really excited about, you know, I'm working on at Outer Bounds and we're open sourcing there is, is documentation systems based on literate programming. So let's say you don't want to do literate programming, you know, or it's too, let's say, esoteric for what you're working on. One thing that I think every, everybody can relate to is the pain of code documentation. So like, how is code documentation done today? It's very backwards. Like you copy and paste code into markdown files. You copy and paste the output of that code into markdown files. Then you maybe write some prose in that. And then oftentimes like those code in markdown files is not tested. There's not like necessarily clear ways to test that. And the output of that code is, you know, goes stale and not generated. And what happens is like super painful and a lot of times code or this documentation is out of date or doesn't work and kind of it's very unnatural because you have to copy and paste stuff. That's painful as programmers. Copying and pasting stuff continuously is like a super painful experience. It's something that we, we know that we should try to avoid. It's kind of like using Jupyter Notebooks. Can we create a system where you can have like tutorials, how-to guides, things like that with notebooks and like turn that into beautiful looking websites that allow you to create nice documentation that you can also test. You can run a test on it and see if the documentation is still working, like the code is doing what it's supposed to do and what it's up to date. And then also like providing an avenue to do API documentation in that too, bringing in stuff you may already have in your code, like in doc strings and stuff like that, but like showing it in a way and then having more examples in your API documentation. So like, yeah, we're working on that at Outer Bounds. So we have something. If you go to Outer Bounds slash docs is the repo, which you'll, you'll, you'll share the link probably in the podcast. That's right. I'll share the link in the show. And I've got to say, man, hearing you talk about then is great. But for our listeners, Hamill and I paired on this stuff earlier this week and it, it kind of blew my mind. It was so much fun seeing the docs in real time update in a, in a beautiful manner when all I was doing was what I do in Jupyter Notebooks anyway, particularly after the weeks of suffering with AWS and SageMaker. Also, I'm not sponsored by AWS. For what that, that's, that's super exciting, man. And I do admire and I'm inspired by your dedication to documentation as well. As I made clear before, this maybe is a nice way to wrap everything up. The work that our stats and the people involved in the tidyverse in particular have done on documentation and a couple of other things such as folding the terminal into RStudio, for example. There are a few other very beautiful design choices they've made that have made it so practical for people to get up and running. I mean, you know, my background, I worked with a lot of biologists and seeing how they could jump into the, the R ecosystem. You know, there are quirks, of course, and people can come and say whatever about indexing and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. But whatever it is, right? But the, the truth of the matter is it's garnered adoption and stuck because it helps people 
and reduces the barrier to entry. Similarly, with a lot of the Pi data stack, there are a lot of packages I could mention. Dask is very close to my heart. Their documentation is beautiful. Scikit-learn, their process of documentation-driven development. Scikit-learn, of course, has been popularized for many reasons, including the API, but the documentation has meant that anyone, anywhere in the world with an internet connection can suddenly get up and running with basic model building and that type of stuff. And the documentation is so, so absolutely key there. And I think I mentioned this, but their practice of documentation-driven development is incredibly important with respect to making sure that what they build actually adheres to to good documentation protocols. So the fact that you're thinking about this and working on it and have been for years is awesome as well. Yeah, no, I think documentation is probably the most important aspect of a tools project. Because, I mean, it, it is what people see and is the main interface that people have to your product. And so it is absolutely the most important thing. Like, that's where you can either welcome users or make users suffer. Exactly. Thank you so much for such a freewheeling, wild conversation with a lot of your rich history as well and diving into kind of all the details of your thought processes around what you've worked on historically from consulting and everything that happened there to the AutoML at DataRobot to everything at Airbnb, GitHub, and now Out of Bounds. I'm wondering if you have a final call to action for all our listeners, something you'd like to see them do. Yeah, try out this documentation thing. I think it can be a really cool... I mentioned Fast Pages as a blogging site. I think this documentation thing... Is uh, can also be used for blogging. So if you're trying to create really nice-looking blogs and you want to use notebooks, or you're blogging about code in general that has code in it, give it a go. Awesome. And we'll include the link in the show notes. So everyone, please do check out uh, github.com slash outerbounds slash docs. Oh, and we'd love to get your feedback on that. So, Hamel, thank you once again for such an awesome chat. Yeah, yeah, it was fun, man. Awesome. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And thanks for sticking around to the end of the episode. I would honestly love to hear from you about what resonates with you in the show, what doesn't, and anybody you'd like to hear me speak with, along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know currently is on Twitter, at Vanishing Data is the podcast handle, and I'm at Hugo Bound. See you in the next episode.